You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hey, welcome to Metamorphosis, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers. This episode is part of our reflection series, where we zoom out a bit and consider our medical journeys through the lens of those who have a little bit more hindsight. My name is Mike. And I'm Aiden. And today we have a really special opportunity to pick the brain of veteran physician, Dr. Paul Thiessen. Dr. Thiessen has been in clinical practice for over 40 years, during which he was medical director of the Intermediate Nursery at BC Women's Hospital, as well as the Spinal Cord Clinic at BC Children's Hospital. In addition to serving on boards for the Canadian and BC Pediatric Society, he was instrumental in establishing the ward at Women's Hospital that is devoted to perinatal care for mothers experiencing substance use. Dr. Thiessen, thank you so much for joining us virtually today. Oh, I'm happy to do it. Do you want to just start off by telling us a bit about who you are and what your path through medicine looked like? Sure. Yeah. So I am a general pediatrician who has spent his career strongly focused on newborn medicine and um, on the care of children um, with spinal cord injuries and spinal cord anomalies. I've also worked a lot with the Canadian Pediatric Society in their um, uh, teaching outreach issues, and um, uh, I have done a journal club for 10 years for the CPS along with a colleague in Montreal. So... Brief background on how I found medicine um, or how it found me. And I guess I'd have to say that my experience was sort of the latter. Um, I was born into a family that had been agrarian for about 500 years, as far as I can tell. And um, I was growing up on a farm in southern Alberta. And uh, my family were quite poor and we didn't have running water in our home and so my mother had heated up a large container of water for the laundry and put it on the floor and she thought I was safely secured in the other room and I wasn't I was 18 months old and I um, fell into this uh, sat into it basically and um, fortunately I was wearing a diaper and uh, I sustained uh, about a 30% burn and um, in in those days that degree of um, uh, burn was considered to be incompatible with life, or at least most people would die if they had more than a 30% burn. So I was rushed to the local um, hospital, which was in Tabor, Alberta, which is about 30 miles away. And um, my parents were then told that this looked pretty grim and that I would likely die. And uh, I didn't. (laughs) They kept the vigil. And uh, uh, I obviously lived. And um, throughout my childhood, I was obviously very conscious of it because my my parents were very um, proud of the fact that I'd lived, obviously. And so they would often show my burns to family or friends who visited and like just pull up my shirt and say, here, this is what we're talking about. And I had pretty nasty scars, which I still have. And... um, but I wasn't very interested in what had actually happened as a child. And um, when I was about 11, my mother sat me down one day and felt that I should have the story out and that she should explain to me exactly what happened. 
And so she did. And um, she talked about how they were told I'd probably die and that they waited for my death. And uh, she said, and you know, despite the fact that you were so ill and were going to die, the staff were all so kind and generous. And the doctor in particular, uh, whose name was Dr. Muir, um, he was just a wonderful man. Well, that conversation stuck very firmly. And I kind of decided on the spot that I would be a doctor. And I know that because I have a little notebook in my possession where I wrote in my 11-year-old hand, when I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor, nothing else. And um, so I have met a number of other people in medicine who have been pushed strongly in that direction by some family medical uh, crisis or disaster, and I was certainly one of those. And so I never really changed my mind. Um, and um, I then... Uh, went to the University of Alberta in Edmonton for my uh, medical school training and uh, graduated in 1974. And um, I had had um, a rotation in my uh, final year in um, internal medicine with a very, very good uh, doctor as my, as my tutor, mentor. Um, and... Um, but right back to back with my internal medicine rotation, I did pediatrics, and the contrast couldn't have been more stark um, from dealing with elderly people in congestive heart failure and things like this to um, children, young children and infants who in many cases had infectious diseases um, because there was still a lot of meningitis and pneumonia around. Our um, bacterial vaccines hadn't been invented yet, and so... We dealt a lot with uh, acute infectious diseases from which children usually recovered. And so after I'd been doing pediatrics on that rotation for a few weeks, I thought, hmm, I kind of like this. And the histories are way shorter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, that seemed very attractive to me. And so I decided to do a pediatrics. Now, in my medical school class of 114, there were, I think, um, either 12 or 14 of us who decided to do a straight which is a, a straight internship in whatever we were going to do. So I went right into pediatrics, uh, whereas a lot of people did a rotating internship, uh, which um, was had a lot of strengths to it because you basically did a year in a hospital where you did all the different services, emergency surgery and internal medicine. And, um, but I did a straight, so which meant when I was finished, I could only do pediatrics basically. So I then uh, did my first two years of pediatrics here in Vancouver. And of course, all of your life decisions are um, influenced by a lot of different factors. And in my case, my in-laws had just moved to Vancouver from the prairies. And um, the first time we visited them when I was in third year medical school, um, I took one look around Vancouver and says, hey, I think I'd like to live here, <laughs> or we'd like to live here. And uh, we never changed our mind. And um, so I then applied to UBC to do my um, pediatric uh, residency. And um, I did my first two years here in Vancouver. And then I really wanted more exposure in an academic center. And so I applied to and was accepted at um, Sick Kids and at Montreal Children's, but I didn't speak French. Um, <laughs> Again, one of those things. One of those things in life where, when I was in grade nine and we had to choose a language in school, uh, my uncle was the German teacher, 
And so um, <laughs> guess what I took? <laughs> exactly. And he was a really nice guy and I liked him. So I never learned any French. Um, so I went to Sick Kids in Toronto and um, did my senior years of my residency at Sick Kids. Now, that is an unusual thing to do nowadays, to jump around and go to different institutions, or at least it's much less common than it was then. And um, so doing my senior years at Sick Kids was a, was a very formative experience because the atmosphere was so academic. And I really, really enjoyed that after I got over the trauma of the first month where they're always grilling you and asking you questions on rounds and making you state your opinion in front of everyone else. Um, that sounds thoroughly uncomfortable. Well, you know, we don't do that much anymore. You know, that style of teaching sort of fell into disrepute. Um, and I find sometimes we go to much greater lengths now not to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Uh, but can you imagine in a grand round with 200 people present, just suddenly the, the, like they're discussing different cases and suddenly the presenter just says, uh, well, what do we think of this x-ray? Uh, Dr. Thiessen, are you up in the stands there? Could you please tell us what you think of this x-ray? And in front of 200 people standing up and trying to speak your mind. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, so uh, I did my senior years at Sick Kids, and um, there was opportunity to stay and uh, fill the chief resident role at that time which at that time was still an actual one person. Nowadays, the chief resident job in any hospital seems to be a committee of people. It's not one person. Uh, but I didn't. I came back to Vancouver, and I did um, a year of neonatal training because I had been asked before I went to Toronto whether I would join a particular pediatric practice here in Vancouver, um, and um, I enthusiastically agreed. And that practice did a lot of neonatal medicine um, because the um, senior partner was um, uh, the head of the nursery at um, the Old Grace Hospital and then at BC Women's Hospital. And um, uh, so I joined that practice. And so I did a whole year of, of neonatal training when I returned from Toronto to Vancouver. And so I did a, a total of five years of post-medical school training um, before I went into practice. And um, so our practice has always been heavily focused on newborns and still is, um, although we do general pediatrics, which covers all the um, fields from behavioral to, um, you know, psychiatric stuff, uh, learning. And um, so I've, I've done a, a pretty broad range of pediatrics over the course of my career. So to your point about having a pretty broad scope of practice, could you give us an idea of what some of the biggest shifts were over the course of your career? Well, um, in one sense, that's pretty easy to answer in that we've, I've moved, we've moved very strongly from focusing on infectious diseases to focusing on behavior and learning and uh, all of the, what have sometimes been referred to as the new morbidities. Um, that's been a major shift. Um, so in the early years of my practice, and you know, one of the things I did in my career, starting right from the beginning, because this was modeled to me by my senior partners, was I kept track of every consult that I did um, in the office because um, I had to always make sure that I had dictated a letter to the referring physician. And so I would write down the patient's name, the diagnosis, and then when I dictated the letter, I would tick in one box. And when I reviewed the letter before it was sent out, I, I ticked in another column. And so I had a record through, of my whole career's uh, consultations, um, what all the diagnoses were. And it was certainly very um, apparent as you go through these books 
that um, it went from uh, you know follow up for meningitis and pneumonia and da 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 to uh, attention deficit disorder and uh, behavior problems and learning difficulties and so there was a big swing away from organic disease which. Um, I have often used that illustration in a limited scope for people who are vaccine hesitant uh, to explain to them how, you know, some diseases have actually disappeared in the course of my career, that we can hardly teach a resident how to do a lumbar puncture anymore because nobody gets meningitis. And that has really sunk in for some people who are vaccine hesitant, saying, look, folks, some, some diseases are gone. You'll never know somebody with polio. I have actually seen two cases of diphtheria because when I went to the Ukraine um, in the 1990s, their vaccine program had really lapsed in the confusing era before the fall of communism. And um, I actually saw several children with diphtheria. I even saw a child who died in, in Uganda from um, uh, tetanus who wasn't immunized. So that was a big, big shift in the course of my career. How do you see it changing in the future, in the next 10 years or so? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, I think in some sense, for the present time, the die is cast, and that um, behavioral uh, and learning pediatrics is a huge segment now, which, um, which is there to stay, I think. Um, we call this developmental pediatrics. And um, that segment of pediatrics is going to continue to flourish because we have defined so many more ways of approaching these issues. And um, medicine has become very strongly uh, entrenched in how we manage children with behavior and learning problems. So that was a big, a big change. So just to change gears a little bit here, something we know about you is that you have been involved in various international health outreach missions throughout your career, like your project in the Ukraine. I was wondering if you could touch a little bit on the impact these had on your career as a whole. Right, sure. Yeah, um, I don't know why I became so curious about international health at an early stage, but I did. And um, Again, probably it was through the influence of uh, a couple of people I knew through the Canadian Pediatric Society who had done extensive work overseas. Um, and it made me very interested to see how this works and you know what is medicine like in other countries. And so um, I started by um, doing sort of two-week volunteer stints in Honduras and Ecuador uh, through uh, an organization called Medical Group Missions. And um, their objective was to provide short-term care for people who are ill in small towns and villages in Honduras and Ecuador who didn't have medical care. We brought dentists with us, and they would be kept incredibly busy because there were so many people with terrible dentition in these places. And um, uh, yeah, and from then, um, I learned of a project run through the University of Alberta, and that was a natural connection because that's where I'd done medical school, uh, called Osvita. And um, after the fall of the wall in 1989, um, there was a lot of 
um, medical confusion in the former Soviet Union countries. And um, there were some strong connections from uh, the University of Alberta with the Ukraine because there are a lot of Ukrainian immigrants in northern Alberta. And so this next this generation of, of uh, immigrants then became very keen to help their their uh, fellow uh, Ukrainians in 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 Kiev especially, which is where most of the teaching was done. And so um, I volunteered to go over and teach. It was it was entirely a teaching kind of commitment. Um, I don't mean in classrooms, although we did some of that, but mostly it was on ward teaching of the pediatricians there to help them. They were completely cut off from the West, so there was no contact with the medical Western literature at all. And so they were still doing things that we had given up many years ago, like one of the most amusing illustrations when I was doing a session on streptococcal infections and their various manifestations, and um, which includes, of course, scarlet fever. And in the pre-antibiotic era, um, children or families used to quarantine for up to three weeks when you had someone with scarlet fever because it was a commonly it was a fatal illness, and um, so it, it was dealt with by quarantining. And um, but after the invention of antibiotics in the 1940s, um, quarantining really didn't wasn't necessary because within 24 hours of taking your antibiotics, you were not infectious. Um, so I'm giving this session to about 100 pediatricians in this room, and um, of which all but maybe three are women. There was no men involved in pediatrics pretty much there. And um, at the end, the, uh, someone says to me, so how long do you quarantine? All being done through interpreters, of course. Um, and I said, well, uh, we don't actually quarantine because once you're in antibiotics, you don't need to be quarantined. Well, goodness, talk about an eruption. Uh, people were just shocked. And, and he said, what are you talking about? And I says, well, how long do you quarantine? And he said, well, three weeks. And of course, it was all I could do to keep him chortling and laughing because that was so outrageously um, misguided. Um, but yeah, they did a lot of things that were not very... Um, understandable given our current state of medical knowledge. Um, and they were completely cut off from the West. So so that was very interesting. So then I, I did, I went there I think five or six times and it was mostly to Kiev, although I went to the Crimea as well. Um, one of the things that drew me to the Ukraine is that's where my mother was born, because um, I'm from uh, Ukrainian, Russian, Mennonite background. Um, and um, so I was able to visit her birth town in, in southern Ukraine, which was a which was wonderful, and um, and I had a huge, uh, long-standing interest in history of art, and so I was able to visit the um, Hermitage in uh, Saint Petersburg, which was a, a nice plus for one of the trips. <laughs> um, and then um, I also went on one um, medical teaching. Um, junket to India because um, I was invited to do that um, to Jamshedpur which is a big industrial city uh, west of Calcutta um, that was very satisfying that was that was very satisfying because like uh, Uganda you could teach in English uh, you didn't have to use interpreters which was wonderful um, because the uh, Indian medical system is all in English and um, so I also went to Uganda a number of times, um, uh, teaching in their hospital in um, Ambarara, which is uh, about three-hour drive south 
east of, uh, southwest of um, uh, the capital city, so um, Kampala. And uh, that was also very satisfying and, and so much more uh, it's easier in the sense that when you don't have to use interpreters, you can communicate so much more readily with your, with your trainees. And so that was very satisfying. Um, and I actually was on the verge of <laughs> going back just a year ago. I was going to return to a program in Rwanda. I shouldn't say return. I've never been to Rwanda. But there was another program that our university is allied with in uh, Rwanda. But then, of course, COVID came along, which has pushed that on the back burner. Do you think practicing medicine in this way, sort of experiencing and learning the way other cultures perform medicine, changed how you viewed healthcare as a whole? And would this be something you'd recommend all doctors do at some point during their career? Well, in my opinion, yes, because it gives you a strong empathy and understanding of the difficulties of practicing medicine outside of your medical culture. Um, you know, even the simple thing of getting an x-ray interpreted, you know, getting an x-ray done properly, um, getting lab results that you can be confident about, um, you know, um, yeah, I think it's a very healthy thing to do. Um, now, the standard of lab medicine in Uganda was much better than what I experienced in Ukraine. Um, in the Ukraine, their standards were pretty shaky in the early 90s. Um, that's improved a lot. Um, but um, it gave me a tremendous empathy for what our colleagues um, endure and have to cope with in less developed areas of the world. Um, it really did. I, I feel it. I feel it made me a better doctor. Um, and also, then when I'd meet families over the years from other places, there was an immediate connection. You know, um, my goodness, if I ever meet anybody from the Ukraine or from Uganda, like I mean, <laughs> or anybody from Africa, you know, you kind of have an instant kind of bond of a certain sort. You know, so I think it definitely was a very healthy thing to do. So, Dr. Teeson, obviously, one of the things that can't be taught in medical school is about making decisions in your home and family life. Can you give us a snapshot of what your journey looked like with your partner and, and children as they came along? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. My journey wasn't probably very typical in many ways. In that we had children very early on in my um, career. Um, I was in my fourth year of medical school when my first son was born. So like he's now like 47 years old, 48. Um, so um, that wasn't that wasn't typical and shouldn't be typical. Um, so that was a big stressor to have children so early on. So when we had the sick kids, um, I mean, my, my call there was pretty ruthless. I mean, I was on call one and three. And you're a senior resident and you're having to spend a lot of time at the hospital. And when you're not actually in the hospital, you're also constantly preparing rounds. And as a senior resident, I was uh, you know, supervising a lot of juniors and medical students. And so you had to constantly be uh, organizing rounds. And um, this was, of course, pre-internet. So um, yeah, that was pretty, pretty stressful. Um, so one of the strong recommendations is Get a spouse that you really get along with <laughs> because she's got to put up with a lot or he has got to put up with a lot. Um, it's, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty stressful. But on the other hand, it also gave me um, a, a very strong direct insight into what it's like for families managing 
career and children. So, yeah. One thing I do know about you is that you're a big believer in having activities outside of work. What role did having different disciplines outside of medicine play in keeping you sharp throughout the years? Well, I think they definitely have played an important role. Um, I, um, I find that doing other things that are completely removed from medicine are, is a very healthy thing to do. Um, and um, I've always loved reading and art and music. And so those have all figured very significantly. I think that um, uh, I, over 20, what, 23 years ago now, a friend and I established a, a men's book club, which uh, has been a very important source of nurturance and uh, forced me to read a whole bunch of things that I wouldn't normally read. That was very helpful, and I, I would recommend that to anybody um, because, I mean, you've got to kind of like reading in order to do medicine. <laughs> it's, very, it's very difficult to get through your training without doing a ton of reading. Um, so so that, was, that was certainly helpful. Um, I think being physically active is really important, and um, there's lots of evidence for this. I don't have to convince you that, I'm sure, um, that... Um, uh, and so I've always been a strong believer in maintaining daily aerobic physical activity. And um, there's a wonderful little book called Spark uh, by John Ratey, who's a who was a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. And the whole book is, it's a short, relatively short book, but it's all about uh, exercising the brain. And um, I think there is very strong evidence that aerobic exercise keeps your brain sharp. And um, I certainly have recommended that book to many people um, because I think that um, it will make your life better. And um, uh, in pediatrics, where we deal so much with attention deficit disorder, there is very strong evidence that uh, aerobic physical activity improves your ability to concentrate and stay on task. And that's been tested in various ways, and it's true. So I uh, strongly encourage um, daily aerobic physical activity, which I have not done yet this morning, I tell you, <laughs> but I will. Um, so beyond physical activity, something else that plays a role in most people's lives is finances. Specifically, we would like to ask you how you learned as a physician how to manage finances, as it seems like this is a topic that's altogether avoided in medical education. Mm -hmm. And when did this learning curve sort of lessen for you? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Good. Very, very, very good question. Um, well, one of the things um, that I was fortunate in is that my wife is a good financial manager. <laughs> so um, while we do make decisions mutually, uh, she definitely does more of the actual financial management. Um, I think MD management uh, is an excellent resource for people going th in, through their career. Um, they have a lot of resources they devote to helping you as a physician manage your finances, and uh, I would strongly lean on them. Um, I also, and this is, again, will boil down strongly to individual people's personalities, but one of the things I decided kind of early in my career, not even as a real conscious decision probably, but that I would devote as little of my thinking time to money as I could get away with. Um, I don't make that a priority. Uh, I don't think it's healthy overall, 
And um, I've seen too many doctors who go down the rabbit hole of constantly watching and tinkering with their investments. And uh, I think it um, detracts significantly from your enjoyment of living. So I do not spend a lot of time at all um, wondering what my investments are doing. I try not to. Would you like to maybe just elaborate a little bit on why you feel it detracts from your enjoyment as a physician? Well, I think that the um, determination to be as rich as possible is a serious pitfall, which has been recognized since time immemorial almost, that um, concentrating on being wealthy um, definitely detracts from other things in life which I think one should spend more time on, like your family. Um, I just I just don't think that it's healthy to spend a lot of your energy, but each person is an individual. And um, I would have to say that one of the pitfalls that I've really have tried to avoid is uh, high risk investments because those really ride on people's um, in, in people's consciousness and, and make and make you think about it all the time. And I've had a few colleagues over the years who spend a lot of time on that. And I don't think that that's helpful. Uh, it's not helpful for your medical practice, and it's not helpful for your mental health. Um, so I would say that one of the um, most important resources you can use in this regard is lean on MD management. They have got a lot of um, savvy people who are very willing to give advice and um, uh, try not to devote more of your mental energy than uh, necessary to managing your finances. Is MD management something that also helps doctors run their own business or clinic? Yes. Yes, they do. Yeah. Now, I had the advantage over the years of being in a group practice. Um, and one of my bits of wisdom, as you know, Mike, from a little article I wrote, Reflections from My Colleagues, is try very hard in medicine not to practice alone. I think it's a real, I say call it a mistake, but it's definitely um, a way of practicing that has a lot of pitfalls. And um, I, um, I would strongly urge people to try to find a situation where you can practice with others um, because it'll make your life a lot easier. And definitely making mutual decisions about how to manage your practice is much easier than going it alone. So um, I think that... Um, and then uh, when your practice is large enough, like already from the time we had uh, four or five people, we had a, an office manager that we could hire who basically handled the actual management of your finances in terms of making sure all the funds came into your accounts that are supposed to be there and that all the delinquent accounts are followed up. Um, and, and that's very helpful. So you don't have to do that yourself. Right now, our office has a really, really fine uh, manager. Um, and uh, it just makes your life hugely easier, hugely easier. That actually leads very well into our next topic we'd like to talk about, which is payment methods in BC. Right. So for you, fee-for-service was the primary method of payment throughout your career. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts or insights on the pros and cons for this kind of model of care versus, say, the newer primary care network alternative payment plans that are starting to gain traction now? Right. Well, I do think that alternative payment plans are a healthier way of remunerating people, personally. Um, it doesn't give people the incentive to work as hard. I'd have to say that. Um, but um, I think that it is a, it's better to... 
it allows you to avoid what I hear complaints of from many people. Your doctor saying kind of time's up, you've got 15 minutes, don't bring more than one problem with you. And I, over the years, I've just been appalled to hear some people say that my doctor's got a sign in his office that says, you know, we can discuss two things and that's it or whatever. Like, I don't think that's healthy. And um, especially when I look at people as my parents got older, they're gone now, but, um, you know, who, you know, like they've all got multiple problems. And um, I, I just don't like that method of, um, of remuneration for people with complex issues, especially. And of course, it wouldn't work at all in running in like a spinal cord clinic. We fortunately we had alternative, an alternative payment plan for that. Uh, so I was given a salary for that. And that works incredibly well. So you have time to um, more time to spend with with patients. Um, so I do think that in the long term, alternative funding plans are the way to go. That's my feeling. Okay, maybe now we could transition to discussing your life post retirement. Um, can you run us through what maybe a typical week looks like for you in retirement? Sure. Yeah, my typical week is that I go to my office on Mondays and see patients. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very fortunate that I am in a practice that um, uh, lets me continue to work on on one day a week. I mean, I, I wouldn't have to work at all, right? But I, I've decided to continue because I like it. Um, and um, so on Mondays, I see patients typically for uh, four to six hours that they find difficult fitting into the office schedule. And because our strong our practice is so strongly centered on newborn care, there are often newborns that go home from the hospital having had various issues or difficulties, or sometimes just perfectly normal newborns, who don't have anybody to follow them up. The family doesn't have a family physician, which is pretty common these days, and um, or the child has special, you know, a child who's an infant who's asphyxiated at birth and spent, uh, you know, a week in the NICU and now needs follow-up to see how it's feeding and gaining and growing and how the parents are coping. And so... Um, we still have quite a lot of babies that need some follow-up. You know, baby had a developmental hip dysplasia or various things that aren't, like, acute but need follow-up. And so um, I still go into my office to see patients on Mondays, uh, typically starting at 9.30 in the morning and usually leaving about 3.30, 3 or 3.30. And I just enjoy it. I love talking to parents. And, you know, it's mostly it is pretty easy stuff and that it's, you know, usually not dealing with critically long-term. When I retired from my um, pediatric practice in July of 2019, I, had, I passed on all my chronic care patients gradually over the preceding months to my colleagues because um, I didn't feel it was wise uh, or practical to try to follow up a child who's got uh, severe um, you know, cerebral palsy or whatever in the long term. Like, I couldn't do that. So I gradually gave that up, um, which wasn't easy for some families. You know, you got to know some people really well and uh, it's not easy to just pass those on to others. Um, so I don't see, although I noticed, I went into my EMR last night just to check to see how many patients I'm seeing to, uh, on Monday, and note that my first patient I'm seeing is a four-year-old who, uh, <laughs> who has Kleinfelter syndrome, and I uh, had followed him from when he had an onset of seizures in the first year of life, and so he's coming back to see me. So... <laughs> <laughs> that's fine with me, but that's not what I seek to do anymore. I, I'm kind of officially retired, you know. 
I used up the 40-year coupon. <laughs> <laughs> so Mondays you're seeing patients. Uh, what about the rest of the week? So, what, yeah, so what, uh, what is the rest of the week? Well, I, um, I'm taking a university course again. I took one last term on art history. I've had a lifetime interest in, in art history, particularly the history of the Renaissance. And so um, one of the advantages of um, being uh, emeritus, uh, I was a clinical professor at UBC, uh, is that I get to take any course I want without any tuition. So um, you just have to get permission from, you just have to get permission from the professor. <laughs> And so um, I last uh, term, I took a course in the history of the Northern European Renaissance, which is Hieronymus Bosch and Friends. And this um, semester, I am taking one on the Italian Renaissance uh, with a wonderful professor. And um, I mean, it's, it's not ideal, right? I mean, like taking uh, classes which are pre-recorded lectures he has times in the week when you can talk to him, although as an articling student, I don't feel I have the right to take up much of his time, right? Um, but, uh, you know, it would be wonderful to be in class and just pop your hand up and say, you know, what about the Medici's here and there? Lots of things like you just can't ask it. Um, but I am really enjoying that. And I, um, my actual plan for this fall had been to go to Florence for six weeks and study with the British Art Institute because they do courses in Florence. But obviously that's not meant to be this year. So, so what else do we do? I, I, I still I do a lot of reading um, in a variety of areas, but my, um, uh, I do belong to this men's book club and our, um, we read a combination of fiction and nonfiction. And um, so I do keep up uh, a lot of, of reading. Uh, my wife and I play tennis um, indoors, of course. Um, and um, I used to play squash a lot, but of course that's kind of been kiboshed thanks to COVID. Um, so yeah, I, I have no trouble filling my time. <laughs> in fact, one of the things, I mean, Murphy's Law is just continually at work in your life. Everything expands to fill the time you give it, you know? And um, it, it, it's, it's insidious and it's real. Um, <laughs> so when you don't have really firm time pegs to say, I'm going to be there at nine and I'm going to be home by two, I'm going to da da, time just morphs into, it's like an amoeba. It just moves into places. Um, so yeah, so my, my week is, um, is spent with a lot of um, reading and time with my wife. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's great. It's very enjoyable. I mean, I, uh, retirement is, has, has advantages. No doubt about it. <laughs> so just to come back full circle to your discussion about your passion for continuous learning, I was wondering how important do you think it is for a physician to have this kind of passion in order to be successful in their career? Well, I guess it's important to define what you mean by successful, I guess. Um, I think in terms of having a satisfying career, I think it's really important, you know. Um, I think the things in my career that have been most um, enjoyable for me have been uh, the ones related to teaching and particularly um, to um, running the journal club in the Canadian Pediatric Society annually. That was very, which basically was a strong incentive to keep up with the literature, you know? Um, because if there's anything that's gonna make your life more interesting as a doctor, it's keeping on the edge of what's evolving in medicine. You know, that's important. It makes you a better doctor, and it just makes your career more interesting. Um, like right now, the, 
use of artificial intelligence in medicine is, is a hot topic. The use of point-of-care ultrasound in um, ER and in the neonatal intensive care unit, hot topics. So um, I think that keeping up with literature is a really, really um, important way to, to um, uh, give you interest in, in life, and uh, I really encourage that. I'll put a plug in here for if, if right early in your career, download the app Read. Read by QXMD. It's free, and uh, you can configure it to your UBC proxy uh, library proxy server, so that you can then go into Read and pull up any article that the library stocks, any journal that the article stock, uh, library stocks, you've got at your fingertips. So I would really encourage you to use that. That app has been hugely helpful to me in the last five to seven years. Um, the other thing that you should uh, try to do early in your career is pick a couple of medical journals that you want to um, keep abreast of. In pediatrics, it's, it's easy. This is probably about... 10, but um, of which I only, you know, three or four are the main ones, uh, like pediatrics or journal of pediatrics, and then get them to send you their index each month, uh, which they will do without any payment. And then you can go to the uh, library and pull up the journal articles that you actually want to read. Um, so I think keeping up with the, with the literature is a really important way of keeping up your interest in medicine. So at this point, I'd love to be able to ask you a few more general questions. And without framing things in terms of, you know, regrets in life, um, I'm just curious if you were to look back now, um, in hindsight, would you have done anything differently in your career? Hmm. Yeah, I've often thought about that. Um, Kierkegaard said that life is only understood looking backwards, but must be lived looking forwards. <laughs> you know, <laughs> You don't really understand things until you've experienced them. Um, you know, in one word, no. I wouldn't do anything differently, you know? I, I really wouldn't. Um, I, um, I mean, sometimes I have envied people who have a clear academic focus, like somebody who does endocrinology. And I really considered for a period of time after I'd done my year of neonatal training in the uh, 70s when I returned from sick kids, uh, being a neonatologist. That did interest me briefly, you know, to become really specialized in some area. But I derived so much satisfaction out of being a more general pediatrician that I've never regretted that. Um, but I did give that some passing consideration to focus down and become a subspecialist rather than just a pediatrician. Um, so I think in one word, no, I wouldn't do anything differently. Um, and I think becoming very involved with the work of the Canadian Pediatric Society and the BC Pediatric Society was something I would encourage anybody to do, uh, is, is devote some of your time to giving your time to other things for which you're not remunerated, right? I mean. I never get any money from the CPS. Uh, they pay my way when it was possible to fly to meetings. <laughs> uh, you know, I would get my, my way paid. But um, give your time to other things because it's very satisfying. Very satisfying. So in that vein of career satisfaction, what sort of advice would you give to early trainees, kind of like us, uh, for finding the most success and satisfaction of our careers and also our lives, I suppose? Mm -hmm. 
That's a very, very good question, um, which I guess ties into would I do anything differently, right? Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I think that I, one of the things I would really advise is early in your training, keep up with the current medical literature. <clears throat> I've already said that, but I think that is a hugely important way of um, keeping your interests peaked and your focus sharp is keep up what's evolving. And um, that's, that's really an important way of keeping up your interest. Um, because that's the only way you're going to get long-term satisfaction, and it's going to make you a better doctor. Um, so that's definitely something I would advise everyone to do, is keep up with your, with your reading. And, uh, and that's all, also, of course, keep up with your reading outside of medicine, too, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, read for fun <laughs> and uh, read widely, you know. And I think it really helps to have developed some additional focus of interest, you know, if it's restoring cars or doing crafts or playing a musical instrument. I mean, it's one of my, you know, two of my big life regrets. I never learned to play a musical instrument, and I never learned another language except for German, which isn't a very useful language. Um, as much as the Germans like it to be. Um, <laughs> so, um, no, I think uh, 300,000, 30,000 foot view of what I would uh, advise um, is just keep interested in things and keep reading. And um, I mean, I guess the other things I would suggest is develop friendships outside of medicine. You know, I think that's really helpful too. You know, my best friend is an anthropologist. Um, he was a medical anthropologist in the last part of his career, mind you, but he's an anthropologist. And uh, so, um, and previously, my best friend who died from cancer ten years ago, he was um, uh, he was a lawyer who became a businessman. And uh, I think it's really helpful to have friends who aren't doctors. Um, Having said that, four out of the guys in my men's book club are doctors. <laughs> um, yeah, do as you say, not as you do. Exactly. <laughs> because, of course, you naturally gravitate to people that you're seeing a lot of, right? I mean, that's just natural. Yeah, absolutely. And so from the perspective of 40 years of practice, uh, do you have a single sort of achievement or, or accomplishment that you're most proud of? Hmm. Well, one of the things I was pretty pretty proud. Of, I mean, I guess probably one of them was establishing that ward at Women's Hospital for the care of mothers and infants with substance use. That's unique in Canada, and um, but that and and I definitely don't take uh, credit that the the the. the force behind that was a family doctor named uh, Ron Abrahams, who um, really put his weight behind it. And we had the fortune of having a CEO at um, Women's Hospital at the time, uh, Liz Wynott, who was very sympathetic because she had been a family doctor who had worked in the downtown east side. And um, so establishing that ward was a particular uh, satisfaction. And uh, I was the medical director of the uh, nurseries at the time when the ward opened. And so that was a huge a hugely career satisfying thing to do. I guess one of the other things um, I, earlier, you, you, you people just have no idea. Uh, you have very vague memories, I think, of what it was like to have smoking around all the time, including in hospitals. And so getting smoking out of hospitals was a huge undertaking. It took about 10 years. 
And uh, I was one of the three or four physicians at Children's and Women's who was on the forefront of eliminating smoking from the hospital. And it seems like such an easy thing now to, of course, I mean, why would you allow smoking in a hospital? Well, it was, um, including... Uh, when the new Children's Hospital opened in 1983, when you came off the elevators on the third floor, right in front of you was you were in a smoking lounge. There was little couches, and you could sit there and smoke openly. Um, it, it it seems like a journey in space now, you know, like being on another planet. But but and so <laughs> alternate universe. Exactly. And so getting smoking out of the hospitals was a massive, a, a big undertaking, uh, including when we got down to the last, that took about 10 years. When we got down to the last smoking lounge, which was beside the intensive care unit at Children's Hospital, um, the thinking was this, you know, if you've got a child who's on a ventilator because they've just been in a car accident, that is no time to make a parent stop smoking. That's unkind. And then when we got the last cigarette vending machine out of the hospital, another uh, major effort, I was on the medical advisory committee at the time, um, uh, the thinking was, well, you know, in the middle of a cold November evening when it's raining, it's so cruel to make parents walk three blocks to the uh, shopping center at the corner of Oak and Broadway, uh, of, of Oak and 25th, to, to get their cigarettes. Like, that's just not kind. And so you can f always frame things in different ways. Uh, so the, that smoking removal effort was a major kind of thrust in that part of my career. Um, and um, felt pretty satisfied when that was over. But it was a pretty bruising journey, actually. Yeah, that's a pretty incredible story because, you know, I'm old enough to remember going to a restaurant and then them asking if you like the smoking or non-smoking section. And, you know, nowadays it's just such a foreign concept. It's incredible to think that, you know, there you really had to go through those kind of motions to uh, change the culture at large. My, my middle son, Matt, at the time, we'd go into a restaurant and there'd be smoking somewhere and somebody could see somebody smoking. And my, when he was like maybe 11, 12, he would just hold on to my arm and say, Dad, please just don't say anything. Don't say anything. <laughs> Live in terror of being humiliated. <laughs> oh, man, poor little guy. So just in our last couple of minutes here, I'm wondering if you have any sort of final warnings or admonishments for the next generation of doctors? Well, I guess one of my um, admonishments would be um, don't be too enthralled by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, I think that's a big, a significant pitfall. Um, one of the things that I did early in my career, starting probably within the first three or four months as I stopped seeing pharmaceutical, no, not that that's not true, but the first two years was I stopped seeing any pharmaceutical reps. I didn't think that, didn't seem like a wise way to get information. They'd always bring you lunch, right? And and they were always nice people and, and good to chat with, but I just didn't think that was very wise. And um, in retrospect, I think it's absolutely true. And so if I have any advice is be very cagey about your relationships with big pharma um, because they're out to make money for their sh to shareholders. Um, one, one book that I've, I mean, I've written quite a number of books around these issues, and one of them is called Drugs for Life by Joseph Dammit, uh, or Dumit, D-U-M-I-T, I think, Drugs for Life. And the thrust of the book is that 
a pharmaceutical company's primary interest is not to give you a drug that cures you so much as to give you a drug that you have to keep taking. And so um, a good example probably is um, drugs for ADD, where um, it's common to give these drugs to children in their mid to late childhood. And then generally most people wean off of them or stop them by the time they're in their teens or early 20s. And now there's a strong thrust to make people consider that these are drugs for life. And um, so I guess one of my um, uh, admonitions is definitely to keep your, keep a gentle but careful distance from big pharma. And uh, definitely, regardless of what medicine you do, don't meet pharmaceutical reps in your office. I mean, I think that's just a good general principle is don't meet pharmaceutical. That's not the place to get your information. You know, and then some doctors say, yeah, but that's how I get samples that I can then give to people who can't afford them. I say, yeah, but uh, by and large, it's been shown that that doesn't save people money because you know, they have to make that up somehow. And um, so, so that's one of my admonitions is keep your distance from big pharma. Thanks. I think that's a great reminder. Uh, do you have any examples of how that might play out on sort of an institutional level? So already in my career, when I, when I was doing a lot of leadership stuff at, at, uh, with the BC Pediatric Society and the Canadian Pediatric Society, we had to wrestle with, especially when I chaired the annual meetings committees, you know, we had to wrestle with how much money do we accept from these people and what form should it be in, you know? Like, it was very common uh, when I was first doing this in the 90s to, uh, for, for, for pharmaceutical companies to host uh, a dinner and um, pay for your, you know, pay for your wine and dine you. And, um, uh, and then I just, you know, a lot of us felt that this wasn't right um, because it does powerfully influence you. If somebody gives, buys you a glass of wine, you are in their debt in a certain way. And you know this with gift giving of any kind. And um, they're not stupid. They're very smart about marketing. And so... Um, uh, we gradually, and our BC Pediatric Society was very um, uh, strong in this direction. We stopped accepting pharmaceutical dinners and things like that. We just didn't want to be indebted to people. Well, that's great advice, I think. And that's sort of how we found ourselves in the opioid crisis in the first place. Exactly, yeah. And the final bit of wisdom I'd leave you is read a few books like How Doctors Think by uh, Jerome Groupman. Um, terrific book written about 12 years ago now about uh, how doctors make decisions and how doctors make mistakes. Um, very, very good, good book. Um, how doctors think. It's one of, been one of the most influential books I've read in the last 15 years on the practice of medicine. He's an oncologist from Harvard, I think, or from, well, Eastern United States anyway. And uh, that was a very, very fine, fine read. It's entertaining, too. Like, it's funny in places. Um, but how doctors think. Well, it's been lovely talking to you, Dr. Thiessen. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Wish we could meet at the pub. <laughs> but that will come back. That could be your 2022 interview. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. And as always, thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us today. To find more from Metamorphosis, search us up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, wishing you your best health.
This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 